You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. I say this all the time, but people love stories. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but from the beginning of time, human beings have loved stories. From campfire stories to oral legends to cave drawings, we are all people of story. And this is just as much true today as it has been throughout History, all you have to do is look at the massive amounts of time spent on movies and television shows today, right? I mean, some of you are like, I binge watched like three seasons um, just yesterday, right? Like we love stories today. And the reason for this, I would argue, is that we were made by a storytelling God. We see this, first of all, in the life of Christ when God in the flesh, he taught using stories. Um, We also see this when we zoom out. And we look at the Bible as a whole, this book as a whole, what we see is this is so much more than just a religious book full of moral codes and do's and don'ts. This is actually the true story of everything from beginning to end. And this is what really separates Christianity from other religions. There's, there's many things, but one thing is we aren't here to just give you do's and don'ts. We're here to tell you a story of what God has done for you in Christ and how you can be made new in him. And it's really amazing. Dan Taylor put it this way. Your life task is to be a character in the greatest story ever told. It is what you were created for. If faith were primarily an idea, the intellect alone might be adequate for dealing with it. But since it is instead a life to be lived, we need story. And this is why the Bible begins with in the beginning. It's telling a story. It begins with a garden paradise and then literally all hell breaks loose from there. And the rest of the story is about God rescuing and redeeming his people. And at the end, what we see again is a garden paradise. (laughs) That's what's coming for us. And and what's incredible about all of this is that you may not know this, but the Bible, actually, this, this story, the true story, was written over a period of 1,600 years. It contains 66 different books. It has over 40 human authors. It was written on three different continents in three languages, and yet it has one central message, that Christ died for our sins and rose again to reconcile us to God. And that's what we're here to celebrate today. And as I was thinking about what to share, that's kind of like a a big thing for a pastor. Um, That's kind of on our minds as pastors, like Easter Sunday is like the Super Bowl, right? So so you can get in your head if you're not careful about what to share. Um, But as I was praying and thinking, I thought, let's keep it simple this year. And let's celebrate the gospel and, and just work through the main story. I wanted to summarize the main story of the Bible with one verse. And there were so many verses I could choose. You may know the sign in football games, John 3.16, the crazy guy waving it around. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a great way to summarize the story. Um, But the one that I landed on today is from 1 Corinthians 15. And here in verse 3, the Apostle Paul, one of the followers, early followers of Jesus, lays out the gospel in the clearest of terms. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We summarize this verse with the kids using a hand motion. So I'm going to ask Ellie and Claire to come up. They're going to help me unless, unless they're too afraid. No, they're coming. They're ready. All right, so we're going, to, we're going to have them come up, and they're going to stand here. 
And so this is what we do with the kids, okay? We use our hand to summarize this first. Are you ready? And we say, Christ died for our sins and was raised. All right, give them a round of applause. Thank you so much for helping. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that sentence, and we're just going to walk through it briefly today. I knew there would be kids in the room. So yes, this is a message for adults, but the kids should be able to get something out of it too. In fact, we made this little handout. Some would say creepy. Others would say cute, you know, um, but it, it, it summarizes this. And so kids, you'll find this in your busy bag and you can just fill out the lines. And so um, the first thing we're going to look at is that Christ died. And so that's one and two. All right, kids, if you want to write Christ died, I might not do that every point, but you know, you get the point from here. Okay. So Christ died. This is the first part of the verse and it explains that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Now, the question may come to mind, why does Paul, this, this writer of this account, why does he refer to him as Christ? It's common to think of Christ as the last name of Jesus. Like, if Jesus had a jersey on, the back would say Christ. That's kind of what we think. But really, that's not the case. It's his title, um, not his name. So if we look around here, we've got three different coaches here today. We've got Coach Josh, Coach Joey, and Coach Zach. The entire coaching squad for boys and girls basketball here today. Let's give them a round of applause, all right? So here, here's why I bring them up. And Zach's like, I hate you. I'm never coming again, right? Don't bring attention to me. Um, but anyways, here's, here's why I bring that up. Their name is not Coach Josh and Coach Joey. That's a title. And very similar to that is Christ Jesus. That's his title. It's not his name, okay? And so Christ has the idea of what he came to do. And you may have also heard him called Jesus the Messiah. Messiah and Christ are very similar. And the word Christ literally means anointed one or chosen one. And it refers to Jesus as being the chosen Messiah, the chosen deliverer, the chosen rescuer or savior for mankind. So when he says that Christ died for our sins, he's saying that this chosen Messiah, this chosen deliverer sent from God has come to die. We know from other passages in the Bible that Jesus is the Son of God, equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. So this makes this title, Christ, even more significant because this isn't just a man who came to rescue us. He was definitely a man, fully a man, but he was also fully God. This was God who came to rescue us. This is who came to die. Now, what was his big rescue plan? Somewhat paradoxical, but also remarkable at the same time. His grand rescue plan was to die. To come to this broken and sin-cursed world and to let his own creation nail him to a cross. You may think, how does that rescue anyone? Right, the central hero of the story that you're telling me dies? Like, how is that a rescue plan? But here's the thing, Christ didn't just die. Christ died for our sins. And that brings us to the next part. So kids, you watching? Christ died for our sins, all right? The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And if we're honest, we all know that, right? We don't um, have to really teach the idea that, that we mess up. I think we all get that. We know that. Um, we, we, we rebel. We overstep boundaries. We lie. We cheat. We get jealous. We lose our tempers. We don't even keep our own standards, let alone God's. And I don't know about you, but when there is a, a rule in place, it's like, I want to break it just because the rule's there. Do you ever feel that? 
Like it's just, there's this in us, this natural bent towards sin. I've often illustrated it like that one shopping cart at Walmart. You go, you check it, you think you're good, you start to wheel and it's just bending into the aisle the whole time. That's us because of our sin nature, but we're bent away from God and his good design for us. And so it leads to brokenness. It leads to pain. It leads to question. It leads to us looking to our jobs for fulfillment. It leads to us looking to this life and what it can offer us. It leads us looking to, to temporary pleasures. It le- leads us looking to romance or wherever you fill the blank in. We all have this empty void in our lives and we're trying to fill it with something, but we're broken. We're sinners. We're separated from God. And here's the big problem with that. Not just that we're broken and that we can have empty lives. That, that certainly is a tragedy, but there's so much more of a problem. And that problem is God. You say, what do you mean? The scriptures teach that God is holy and just. If you went into a courtroom and there was a judge there and there was a guy guilty of an atrocious, atrocious murder. I mean, he was on there. There is video evidence. and And the judge says, I know that he's guilty and he deserves the full punishment of the law. But I'm a really nice guy. And, you know, I don't want to put him in jail. I don't want to I don't want to lock him up. We're just going to let him go. You'd be outraged by that, right? We all know in our hearts, justice must be satisfied. And here's the thing. God is perfectly just. We get that sense of justice because it's written on our hearts. Our creator is just. He's holy. He's perfect. He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He's not like grandpa who just lets everything go, right? He's a holy and a just God. And and the scriptures teach that the punishment for our sins... What we deserve in our own state is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's what we deserve because of our sins. If God is going to be just, you need to hear this, he must punish sins. He cannot simply overlook them. But here's the greatest news in all the world. God came up with a plan that would both forgive us for our sins but also maintain his justice and his holiness. How in the world are you going to come up with a plan like that? He sent another to take our place. A Messiah, the Christ, a rescuer who would pay the penalty for our sins. This is Jesus. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect, sinless life so that we could, could look to him as our righteousness. He lived this perfect, sinless life He died on the cross for our sins. He took our place on the cross for our sins. And it was there, we sang about it several times, it was there that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus instead of us. They sang about it in the song that we just heard them sing. That Jesus, the the night before his crucifixion, the Bible says that he is so overwhelmed with anxiety over what's about to come that he's literally sweating drops of blood. And you can look that up. It's a medical condition that the person is under so much agony and stress that the capillaries in their sweat glands actually burst and they sweat a blood-like substance. And Luke, the physician, notes that for us. Well, why is he sweating drops of blood? When you look through history and you look at Christians who went to to the, the martyrs, they died for this message of the gospel. They were thrown to lions. They were lit up in garden parties to, to be mocked by the Romans. And there's, there's accounts of Christians in history who are singing songs to God on the way to being burnt at the stake. I mean, talk about boldness. Talk about a living hope. They're not afraid of death because Jesus conquered it. They're bold. 
So why is Jesus seemingly not bold in the garden? Is he less of a man? No, here's the thing. He's not just going to a physical cross. He was going to pay the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. He was going to absorb the wrath of God for his own. That's why he's sweating drops of blood. There's a beautiful illustration. They sing about this as well. You may have been like, who's Barabbas in this song? Well, Barabbas, when we get to the account of the crucifixion, it's, it's all leading up to this point where Jesus is going to be nailed to the cross. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this guy named Barabbas. And it's kind of random. But, but Pilate is there. And there's this, this, um, there's this tradition that they do where they release a prisoner at a festival. It's kind of like a way to have goodwill towards the people. And they've got Barabbas on one side. And they've got Jesus on the other side. And Barabbas is a thief. He led an insurrection. He's, he's a terrible person. And so Pilate comes up with this idea that I'm just going to release one of these prisoners and I'm sure that they'll release Jesus. I'm sure the crowd will choose Jesus because what has he done but healed and, and, and helped people and meet needs? Like, I'm sure they're going to choose Jesus because he found no fault in the trial. He found no fault in Jesus. Jesus was sinless. He puts Jesus there and he puts Barabbas. And the religious leaders of that day start stirring up the crowd to call for Barabbas. And they're yelling, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And in this crazy, it seems like interjection of the story, this random prisoner is set free and Jesus goes to the cross. Why did the gospel writers put that in there? Here's why, because you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. That man is meant to picture us. We are guilty. We deserve the cross. We deserve the penalty. But we go free and Jesus takes the penalty. Christ died for our sins. But thankfully, that's not how the story ends. Ready, kids? Christ died for our sins and was raised. That's the last part. I heard an illustration from Tim Keller about this that I want to share. He said, imagine going to your mailbox tomorrow and you get this check. Um, in the mail and, and, and it's just a small amount but it says there's more and there's this long letter explaining who you are and how you have this rich relative and they've got this great inheritance for you. <laughs> you're just like, what in the world? Like, you didn't even know that you had and, and let's say that you're a little skeptical at first, right? Like, I mean, you know, is this, this scams like this, they're floating around so you'd probably be a little, a little bit hesitant, right? But I mean, if you had a check with like a little down payment and you have this long note explaining that this is from your relative and, and then there's more, if you'll just call this number and, and get in contact, wouldn't you be a little bit curious? Like, I mean, that's just an offer too good to not at least check. Like maybe grab a burner phone or something and call it or like get a Google voice number, right? Like I got to check this out. I mean, it seems a little sketchy. I didn't know I had this uncle, but I got to check this out. You know, in a lot of ways, the resurrection of Jesus is like that today. A lot of people in our culture kind of think it's, it's just a scam. They kind of write it off. The message is this, basically, what kind of weird religious person do you have to be to believe that these days? And you may find yourself a little bit skeptical of the resurrection yourself. Whether you're here in this room or whether you're listening online, you may think, really, I mean, I, I get it, it's Easter, let's celebrate, but you may be a little skeptical of it all. But this offer... <laughs> It's just too great to not at least look into. You know what I mean? Like the believers here, we're like, man, we're bought in. Like you don't have to convince us. But maybe if you're here and you're just a little skeptical, would you just look into it a little bit while we reflect and rejoice in the resurrection 
of Jesus. This offer is unlike any other offer. Most religions in the world, they offer some sort of spiritual or immaterial future where you're kind of floating around in the afterlife. You get rewards and stuff if you're good, which none of us are good, so I don't know how that works out, but let's continue. In Christianity, we're not, we're not offered floating on clouds like little angels with little, little bows and arrows shooting arrows, okay? That's not what we're offered. You know what we're offered? We're offered a resurrection on a new creation without sin with brand new physical bodies where we'll walk with our creator and all those who trust Christ for all eternity. That's what we're offered. Physical bodies. Everything you love about this world, some of you are like, I don't want to go to heaven. This world's awesome with waterfalls and and oceans and beauty and stars. Like That stuff's awesome, but the new creation is what's coming for us. We're not floating in clouds. And so many people have that mixed up because of Hollywood, but the scriptures teach physical bodies on a physical creation with our creator. That's what's offered. And so, man, wouldn't you be a little bit curious to look into that? And so for a few moments, I just want to highlight a couple things from our passage about the resurrection. And the first thing I want you to notice is that it's biblical. What do I mean by that? If you look at verses three through four, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can just listen. It says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Did you notice that twice in that short little sentence, Paul says in accordance with the scriptures. What is he doing there? What he's doing is he's rooting the resurrection of Jesus in the historical record and the prophecies that were given in the scriptures. The Jews collected a bunch of writings we call the Old Testament, and they believed that the origin of these writings was from God. And all throughout these writings are these promises that this Messiah, this deliverer, this Christ is going to come. He's going to die for our sins. He's going to rise again. They had this promise. And what you might not know is that in the coming and life of Jesus, listen to this, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled. I'm talking you can look at the record of these writings and when they were written, and they were hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus ever came, and he fulfilled them to a T. Stuff that he couldn't have controlled unless he was supernatural, like where he was born, how he was born, where he lived, how he took our sins, how he was nailed to that cross, how he was, how he was beaten and bruised for us. And, and we see that he's also going to be triumphant, and, and all these things are in the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul says... That this resurrection, this gospel, this good news, it didn't just randomly happen one day. It was all part of the grand plan of redemption. God's story of rescuing his people that he's been writing since eternity past. But not only is the resurrection biblical, it's also rational. A lot of people today just assume that a teaching like the resurrection of Jesus was just something that those first century people, you know, they just accept it without a lot of evidence. They're not like us scientific folk um, who know truth, right? And so, so sometimes we think that, but the text that we're reading, it was around 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And people are already struggling with a teaching like this. The concept of a physical afterlife was considered absurd and even laughable by many of the educated elite of the day. People were a lot more like them. People were a lot more like us in those days than we realize. Now, I have to be careful here because I want to start rattling off some, some truths about the resurrection. But they tell us in our ministry training, um, and if you're wondering, yes, we do get trained for this stuff. If you're wondering what it's like, it's kind of like Batman Begins. Okay, you know where he has to climb the mountain and he has to fight against the darkness. And, you know, it's very similar. Lots of parallels. Okay, but that's kind of like what my training was for this. 
And so what they tell us is be careful on Easter not to become this resurrection apologist where you feel like you have to defend it and stuff. But I just, I want to give a few truths here. And what we see in this chapter is that there are 58 verses where Paul is trying to to convince these people um, and remind them of the the rational nature of the resurrection. Because people are starting to question it already, 20 years after. They're like, did that, did that really happen? Like, I don't know about you, but I believe in a supernatural God and he still does awesome things today. But it's like right after something happens, I start to question it. Like, did that? I don't don't know. Is that just something I ate? I don't know. Like, like Josh and I, just the other day, we were praying for something. And that night we saw God answer that prayer. And the next day I was like, was it just a coincidence? Like, what? Like, that's our age that we live in. Like, no, it was God is supernatural, but it's, it's easy for us to start to question things. And so Paul wants to help these people understand how important it is. What you'll notice in this passage is that he says that I delivered unto you of first importance what I also received. And so we're talking 20 years after the resurrection. He's already sharing something that he had received from others. And what what we see here is this was already a truth that was being spread around um, by these Christians. And it it was in the form of a creed. If you're not sure what a creed is, it's like ABCs, the ABC song. That's like a modern day creed. And so they were already sharing this creed around that Christ had died for our sins and was raised. And then he says this in verse five, he says that Jesus appeared in his resurrection body to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared, listen to this, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, guys, there are over 500 eyewitnesses of this. This didn't happen in a closet. This is, this is different from every other religion again because most of those religions, some guy was praying and he got a vision from God and he's like, follow my teaching. Like, hope that it's from God, <laughs> right? Like, but this, was, this is rooted in history, guys. Over 500 people saw a guy nailed to a cross and then saw him walking around three days later and started sharing that truth and they weren't able to squash it right there. If they, all they had to do was show up with a body. They could have squashed that rumor. And 500 eyewitnesses. So Paul's saying, if you're starting to question this, go to Jerusalem and ask them. (laughs) They saw it. And many of the eyewitnesses were killed for their claims. Again, you wouldn't die for something that was a a lie unless there was some sort of benefit. right? Maybe you want your name to go down in history. But in in these days, it was just a grassroots movement. Christianity wasn't what it was, what what it is today. And people were willing to go to their grave saying, I saw him die. I saw him rise again. He's alive. Now, again, I'm going to stop there um, because I don't want to get caught up. But the last thing I want you to see is that the resurrection is essential. So it's biblical, it's rational, and it's essential. In the same chapter, Paul's going to say this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's saying preaching is empty and faith is empty if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He continues, we're even found to be misrepresenting God Because we have testified about God that he was raised, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So what is he saying? He's saying without a resurrection, the Christian's faith is empty. And he's saying that I'm wasting my time as a preacher. He even says that I'm lying about God if I say that Jesus rose and it's not true. But then in verse 17, he says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Here's the thing, if Jesus took our sins to the cross and died, 
But he never got back up. Sin wins. Death wins. Hell wins. And we're still in our sins. Verse 18, he says this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see what he's saying? He's saying if the Christian's hope is only in this short life, you should pity us. Above all people. But that's not the case. Because Jesus rose from the dead. We live in a broken, sin-cursed world today. And all of you know it just by living here. You've seen it in your own life with the sin, with the shame, the brokenness. You've seen it with loved ones and family members. You see it every day just by watching the news, which I would recommend you watch less of, to be honest. But man, can we all agree this world is broken? This world is messed up? This world needs a deliverer, needs a savior, needs a Messiah? That's what Christ came to do. Christ's work provides a way for all of us to be made alive and reconciled to God. When a person believes in Christ, they turn from their sins and they trust in Jesus alone for salvation. They're brought into this relationship with God. And suddenly it all starts to make sense. Those of us who are believers in here, we get that, right? There's a new purpose about life. There's a new identity. We, we understand that the world's still broken. Things don't get all rosy when you become a Christian. But we know we're just passing through. Because Jesus rose again. And he was the first fruits of our resurrection one day. We start living the way that God originally intended for us to live. Christ died for our sins and was raised. If you forget everything about today, everything about this message, remember that. And hopefully you'll remember with your hand. Kids, you want to try that one more time? Ready? Christ died for our sins and was raised. That's the gospel. That's Easter. That's what we're here to celebrate today. But if you're like me, you may still have one more question. I'm a guy that likes to ask questions. I probably annoyed my parents a lot, like constantly just nagging them with questions. But one of the questions I always ask is why? 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 Why is it this way? Mom, why can't I do this? Dad, why can't I watch this movie? Um, why is the sky blue, right? <laughs> Why? And so, I don't know about you, but I would want to ask the question, why? Why would Jesus, the Christ, die for our sins and rise again? Besides forgiving us, I get that, but like, what's the big thing here? Why? The scriptures give us many answers to that question. The glory of God is being preeminent, but there's so many other answers. They, They attribute it to his love for us. I mean, why he loved us, I have no idea, but he loved us. But, but one of the answers to that question I love is from another follower of Jesus. His name was Peter. And in his letter, he writes this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's him taking our place. And now comes the answer to our question. Why did he do this? He says this, that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus suffer and die for our sins? That he might bring us to God. That's why. I've shared this with you before, but it's all about reconciliation. It's all about getting into a relationship with our creator. It's us being made known by God and loving him and walking with him both now and for all eternity. I illustrate this a lot with a mountain. 
Okay, and so all the religions of the world, they basically teach this, that God or afterlife or whatever you want to put up at the top of the mountain is there, and they're going to show you how to get up the mountain. And so we've got religious documents, and, and if maybe if you do good, maybe if you put some money in our offering box, maybe if, you, if you're nice to your neighbor, then maybe you'll get up the mountain. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty hopeless. But here's what separates Christianity from every other religion. There's still a mountain. God's still at the top. There's a great chasm. But in Christianity, he didn't wait for us to figure out how to get up the mountain. Because he looked down and he saw us in our sin, wandering and running away from the mountain. And so he took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he came down the mountain. He lived the life we could never live. He died on the cross for our sins. And those who will trust him, those who will turn and trust and ask Jesus to save them, he will carry us up the mountain, as Peter says, to bring us to God. To bring us into a relationship with our creator, the one who made us, the one who sent his son to die for us, that we could walk with him, that we could live for him, that we could love him, both now and for all eternity. In the first verse of our passage today, Paul says that he's reminding them of the gospel that saves their souls, that brings them to God. But he says this, I want you to hear this. He says, you are being saved. So by this gospel, you are being saved if, because there's a big if in this passage, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. In other words, if you believe it, if you adhere to it, if you cling to it in faith. Many of you came into this room today and you sat down in those chairs and you trusted those chairs to hold you. You put your faith in those chairs. I didn't see anyone kind of questioning the integrity of the chairs. You just rested and trusted. What Paul is saying here is this gospel, this good news, that's what this means, the gospel. It's good news, but it's only good news for those who believe, for those who hold fast to it, for those who cling to it, for those who throw their sin away, turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. We don't become perfect. We can't become perfect. We will one day. But right now, it's just turning and trusting in Jesus. It's resting on him, just like you trusted in that chair, and asking him to save you, to bring you into a relationship with God. And it's a journey. And it, starts, it could start today for some of you, where you turn from your sins and you trust Jesus. And then the rest of us, we're just following Jesus until he calls us home. It's a journey. But oh, I, just, I couldn't end without saying this message is only good news for those who believe. And so the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? He says, this is good news. It'll save your soul. It'll bring you into a relationship with God if, if you hold fast to what I've preached to you. Christ died for our sins and was raised. Do you believe?